Our first Bible reading tonight is Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 to 6, which is on page 826 of your Bibles. This is Galatians chapter 6, starting at verse 1. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfil the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Our second reading today will come from Matthew chapter 7 on page 685 in your pew Bibles. Uh, We're starting at verse 1 through to 12. Matthew chapter 7. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give, give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything... Do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Uh, Well, good evening. My name's Steve. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Church by the Bridge, uh, and also a regular here at Saturday. We've got a few people here who are new with us tonight, so... Uh, welcome along. You've joined us towards the end of a series where we've been looking at one of the most famous sermons that Jesus has preached. It's called the Sermon on the Mount and it's a sermon where Jesus explains what it looks like to live as part of his kingdom. He's summing up the commands. What does it look like to be one of his followers? And so in this chapter here in chapter 7 that we've read tonight, we see lots of different things going on. But ultimately what we see is one big theme, and that's the theme of relationships. Jesus has turned his attention in chapter 7 to relationships. The relationships that Christians have with other Christians. The relationships that Christians have with these people described in language as pigs and dogs. The relationship Christians have with their Heavenly Father. And last of all, the relationships we have with all people. And we're going to take a look at a couple of these relationships tonight as Jesus speaks to us. And so I'm going to ask God now to speak as 
uh, his word goes out and apply it to our hearts so that we might be more like him. So would you join with me in praying? Almighty God, your word says in Proverbs 3, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all our ways acknowledge you and you will make our paths straight. Do not be wise in our own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. Father, we acknowledge tonight that you are God. And we are not wise, only you are wise. Father, we ask that you would help us to fear you to shun evil. Father, we ask that you would teach us from your word tonight that we might be more like Jesus. Father, I just pray as well for the words that come out of my mouth that they might be truthful and helpful, that they would not cause anyone to stumble and what I say would bring great honour to you. Amen. These words that uh, that Joel just read to us here from Matthew chapter 7 are perhaps some of the most famous words that have ever come out of Jesus' lips. At least for many people, Christians and non-Christians, do not judge are extremely well-known words. And while the command, do not judge, might be well-known, its application, the way we apply those three words, is frequently misunderstood and misapplied. What we do with these three words, do not judge, really comes down to what Jesus means when he uses the word judge. And so perhaps you've been in, in, a, in a conversation with someone and you've spoken out about something. You've condemned something of, as being wrong only to be put in your place by someone who said, now come on now, it's not our place to judge. Or perhaps uh, you've, you've spoken out, you've heard some teaching that clearly contradicts what's in the Bible. Or your friend is pursuing some behavior that is simply not consistent with what the Bible says. You say to your friend, I don't think it's wise or godly for you to stay over at your boyfriend's place on the weekends. And then your friend says, who are you to judge me? And so the question is, what does Jesus mean by these words? Because these people, when they respond in this way, are basically saying, It's not for you or me to determine what is right or wrong. That's not a decision that we can make. And so is Jesus suggesting that Christians should deny what is right and wrong, that they should deny truth and and, and wisdom, deny that there is, sorry, truth and falsehood and wisdom and foolishness? Is that what Jesus is suggesting here in Matthew chapter 7? Well, in a word, no. (laughs) Jesus called a spade a spade. If he saw sin, he called it out as sin. If he saw false teaching, he called it out as false teaching. If it was evil, he called it evil. Jesus didn't gloss over these things or pretend that they don't matter. His teaching in Matthew 7 is not telling us to ignore what Scripture says and to stop applying it to our lives. Because as we look at his teaching in context, we see that Jesus' call here isn't a call to stop caring about sin. It's not a call to stop acknowledging that sin exists, but instead to change our attitude and our approach to it when we spot it in others. Take a look with me at verse 3. 
Jesus says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. Jesus is uh, condemning hypocrisy. He does that throughout the Sermon on the Mount. He's condemning people who are harsh and critical, people who stand in judgment over one another without facing up to the sin that exists in their own life. These are people who are acutely aware of the specks, the tiny wrongs, the sin and errors that they see in the life of others, but are blindingly unaware of the seemingly obvious sin that exists in their own life. And so the question at this point is, does that describe you? Are you judgmental, quick to criticise? Have you got a keen sense for noticing when someone has done the wrong thing? Does your focus on the faults of others blind you to your own? Jesus goes on to give two reasons why we must not be harsh and critical judges of each other. First of all, as we saw from verse 1, judgment results in judgment. Jesus is really blunt. He's blunt the whole way through the Sermon on the Mount. There's no way of dodging around his words or finding loopholes. He says in verse 1, Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, You'll be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. There's strong words from Jesus, but Jesus has been making clear throughout this whole sermon how people are to live as part of his kingdom. And so Jesus is saying that the way that we live, and in particular here in this passage, the way that we relate to each other, shows whether or not we get what it means to be part of the kingdom. It shows whether we really understand what it means to live as God's people. Because let's face it, we were people who should have received God's judgment and condemnation. That was what we deserved. And if God had given us the judgment and condemnation that we rightly deserve for our sin, we would be in no place to complain. We would just have to put our hands up and say, you got me. You're right, I deserve it. But instead, instead of pouring out his justice on us, God poured it all out on his son. We didn't see any of that judgment or condemnation. Jesus got it all. We didn't get what we deserved. We deserved judgment, and what do we get instead? We got mercy, and we got forgiveness. And so the kingdom of heaven, this kingdom that Jesus is speaking about, is full of people who receive what they didn't deserve. It's full of people who deserve judgment and got mercy and forgiveness instead. And so, brothers and sisters, as people who have received mercy, how can we cast judgment on one another? How can we be harsh and critical to each other when that is the opposite of how God dealt with us? And so when we act in this way, we are showing that we don't really get 
what the kingdom is about and what it costs for us to become a part of this kingdom. And so Jesus has a warning. that If we judge, we should expect judgment with the same measure that we used when we judged. John Stott uses a courtroom illustration to drive this home and to make us feel particularly uncomfortable. He says, if we enjoy occupying the bench, we must not be surprised to find ourselves in the dock. If we enjoy judging others, we must not be surprised to find ourselves judged. And so, brothers and sisters, as people who have received mercy and have been saved from God's judgment, we ought not to judge one another. The second reason that Jesus gives for not standing in this hypocritical and harsh judgment of each other is that it makes us unable to help each other and we need to help each other with our sin. Take a look at verse 5. Jesus says again, You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. See, what Jesus is condemning is hypocritical judgment. But he doesn't renounce the responsibility that Christians have to each other. He's condemning us being hypocritical and harsh in the way that we judge each other, but he's still saying we've got a responsibility to each other here as Christian brothers and sisters. Why? Well, the speck in your eye doesn't belong there. If that speck remains there, like any splinter in the eye, it could go on to cause long-term damage. The sooner we get it out, the better. And in the same way, sin doesn't belong in our lives. And it's dangerous. And if it continues to exist, it could harm us. And so it needs to come out. But an eye surgeon who has a massive plank in his eye is not well equipped to perform this kind of delicate surgery. And so Jesus explains that there's a process. Before we go on carrying out eye surgery on each other, Jesus says, we first need to take the plank out of our own eye, and then we will see clearly to remove the speck from our brother's eye. Blame and correct yourself first, and then once your vision is restored, you will be able to help others. It's kind of like when you're flying in a plane and at the start of every trip they give you the safety demonstration which no one watches, which everyone probably wishes they were watching if there was actually an accident on the plane. And they explain that if they lose oxygen at altitude, the masks will come down and you'll put them on your face. And the phrase goes, put it on yourself first. Why? So that you can help others, including children. Now, it's obvious you'll be unable to help others in the event of that emergency if you are passed out on the ground due to lack of oxygen. And in the same way, until we have pulled that plank out of our own eye, we will be ill-equipped and unable to help others who are struggling with sin. What happens if we follow this process that Jesus suggests of self-examination and correction? 
well, surely our whole attitude and our approach to each other will change. One of the early church fathers, Chrysostom, explains that after dealing with ourselves, we will be able to appropriately correct each other. He says, not as a foe, not as an adversary exacting punishment, but as a physician exacting medicine. That's the approach that we take. We come alongside each other, not as judges condemning one another, but as doctors who have performed that very same surgery on ourselves. And we know how painful that procedure can be. And so gently and carefully, with great tenderness and compassion, we walk up and are able to remove that speck from our brother or sister's eye. Do you see the, the beauty of Jesus' teaching here in how we can relate to each other? It's one of humility, of self-examination and correction, and then tenderly and carefully being able to care for each other. Jesus, throughout this sermon, consistently shows us a better way. We then turn, after looking at our relationships with each other, for Jesus to give his teaching on how Christians ought to relate to these people who he describes as dogs and pigs. Take a look with me at verse 6. Jesus says, Do not give dogs what is sacred, and do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet, and then turn and tear you to pieces. Now the surface level example is really quite simple for us to understand. If you had pearls or an engagement ring or your Tiffany bracelet or iPad or whatever it is that's precious to you, you wouldn't run down to Taronga Zoo, jump the fence in the pig pen, scatter it out on the ground and step back and watch. What you have, those precious pearls, are far too valuable to just throw before swine only to be trodden on and destroyed by their hoofs and for the pigs then to turn and destroy you in the anger that you hadn't actually provided them with food. Now, anyone would be a fool to give something that precious to animals that undiscerning. And Jesus is saying here that the same goes for the good news of the kingdom. In several places, Jesus refers to this good news, this gospel, as a precious pearl, a precious, priceless treasure that is to be treated as such and not thrown around carelessly and indiscriminately. And so, of course, the tricky question is, who are these people that Jesus describes as wild violent and dangerous dogs and pigs. Let's be clear here, firstly, what Jesus is not saying. Dogs and pigs is not some generic term that Jesus uses to describe people who aren't Christians. Jesus makes it so clear that his whole purpose, his driving desire in becoming human just like us and then dying on the cross was so that people who are his enemies, could become his friends. If Jesus was going to wait for us to come and fall in love with him, he would never have arrived. 
that day would never have come. The Bible makes clear, Jesus makes clear, it's the sick who need a doctor. And Jesus came to heal the sick and to free the prisoner. And it's God's enemies who need to hear the good news of the gospel. And yet, discernment is required because persistently sharing the gospel with some people is akin to throwing something precious in front of a wild animal. They won't appreciate it. They'll tear it up and destroy it. We see a couple of examples of this being applied in Matthew and again in Acts. Jesus sends out the 12 disciples and he says to them, in some places that you go, you'll be well received, you'll be welcomed, there'll be a great reception for you. He says in other places you go, you won't be well received and in that place don't stick around, dust off your sandals, move on to another town. And later on in the book of Acts, Paul goes to the Jews to to share the good news of Jesus with them. And they reject it. They're angry with him. They don't want him to be there. And so Paul finishes off by saying, Since you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. And Jesus' point here is not to stop sharing. In fact, for some of us, we need to start sharing the gospel. Our world needs to hear this precious news. But there comes a point when discernment is required in a very serious step when you don't keep sharing the good news with people who just don't want to hear it. Now, great wisdom is obviously required to know what this looks like. John Stott says he's only made this decision once or twice in his life. Don Carson explains how he applies these words. He says, over the years I have gradually come to the place where I refuse to attempt to explain Christianity and introduce Christ to the person who just wants to mock and argue and ridicule. It accomplishes nothing good and there are so many other opportunities where time and energy can be invested more profitably. Now, of course, it is a serious step to take, but may God give us discernment to treat the gospel like the precious pearl that it is. You know, some people, when uh, we read through the Sermon on the Mount, kind of uh, rub their hands together with glee and are kind of pleased because they say it's like a to-do list. It's something meaty we can get our teeth stuck into. You know, Jesus tells us some things to avoid, some things that we should do, and he gives us a a practical list of applications, how to be Christians. But as I read the Sermon on the Mount, as I see the behaviour that marks the lives of God's people, it strikes me that this is less of a to-do list and more of a can't-do list. I mean, how do you do these things that we have been looking at in the last few weeks, not judging but showing mercy, forgiving those people who have sinned against us, serving God as if he is the only one who is watching us, refusing to let our money be our master but trusting God to provide all things, loving our enemies, (laughs) avoiding in our lives the slightest hint of lust 
or anger. Being people who are meek, merciful, and pure in heart. And Jesus has explained that these, these things are the values of the kingdom. This is what marks God's people. And yet I am aware that you and I would have a better chance of building a rocket made of ice cream and flying it to the moon than we would of living out these values in our own steam. And the, the whole sermon should drive us to the point of needing God's help. And as I read these chapters, three words come to mind. God help me. God help me. And you know, right on cue, here in chapter 7, verse 7, God replies, I'd love to. Just ask. Take a look with me. Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Now these words have been misapplied um, perhaps even more often than those words of Jesus about not judging one another. And so for many, prayer has become some kind of crude blank check to get from God whatever we want. But can you see what the context, can you see where Jesus is saying that, how that helps us to understand what's going on? Because rather than Jesus being our ticket to buying a three-bedroom house on the lower north shore or finding a husband or being promoted, prayer is in fact the comfort and insurance that Jesus will give us the help to do what is most important in this life and that is to live out the values of his kingdom. We cannot do this with sheer willpower and gutsy determination. And nor does Jesus expect us to. Because he has given us bold, clear promises that our asking, seeking and knocking will be rewarded. And in fact, to reinforce the point, Jesus says the same thing in two sentences. He repeats himself, ask, seek, knock, everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks the door will be opened. He's repeating his promises to make his promises clear. If you want the values of the kingdom to become a reality in your life, you just need to ask me. I will help you. And so, do you find yourself harshly judging others? Ask God for help. Do you desire the praise of others more than the praise of God? Ask God for help. Are your decisions driven more by a trust in money to provide than for God to provide? Well, ask God for help. Do you lust after men or women committing adultery in your heart? Ask God for help. Are your enemies difficult to love? Ask God for help. Now, our prayer really uh, reveals a lot about us. Take a look at your prayers and you will soon discover what you value and what you think is most important. Because when we pray, we reveal 
where we know we are weak and where we are helpless and where we are in need of God. We pray, we bring before God our needs. And so when we look at our prayers, we see what we think we need and what is really important to us in our lives. What are our priorities? What are our values? And so the question that is posed to us after these words from Jesus is, are we praying for the values of the kingdom? Are we seeking God's help to be like him, to live as we ought in the kingdom that we have the privilege to be a part of? Are our prayers consumed with asking and seeking and knocking to be more like God? Or are other priorities and values reflected in the words that we offer up to God in our prayers each day? What do your prayers reveal about the priorities in your life? As Jesus here gives us great confidence to pray, great confidence to ask God for these values to be a reality in our life, he also reminds us of God's goodness. Take a look at verse 9. Jesus says, Which of you, if his son asked for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus' words are a balm. They are a wonderful reminder because I think, and I think this is what Jesus is saying here, that he knows that sometimes we think that if we take Jesus too seriously, we worry it will be bad for us. We worry if we seriously pray about the values of the kingdom being a reality in our life, about being more like Jesus. We worry that life might not be great as it is right now. So perhaps you worry that if you ask God to help you love your enemies, God will make your life miserable and full of difficult people. Or if you ask God to teach you not to serve money but to put all your trust in him, that he'll take it all away. I mean, are these some of the prayers that come in the back of our mind? Are these some of the worries that consume us? I know if I, worry, if I ask God for patience, I'll be in a traffic jam for four hours going to work in the morning. If I ask for humility, my pants will fall off in the middle of preaching. We're concerned about whether or not God really does love us and really does desire what is good for us. And Jesus is reminding us that even parents with their limited wisdom still affected by the fall and corrupted by sin, even parents give good gifts to their children. They would never give a stone or a snake when their, when their son or their daughter asks for food. What kind of cruel, sadistic parent would do that? And Jesus uses his classic how much more argument to explain that God is nothing like a parent. He is infinitely greater and more loving, even than the best parent. Our Father in heaven, perfect and untainted by sin, with no selfish ambition, no corrupt desires, no lack of wisdom, whose love for us is greater than our minds can comprehend. If he poured out all his love into our mind, it would explode in a mess. We cannot handle the love that God has for us. How could that God give us anything other than good things? 
And this is what Jesus is reminding us, that we do not need to worry. We can ask God boldly because he provides for his children and he is incapable and unwilling to give them anything other than what is good. The teaching from the Sermon on the Mount must drive us to pray. We see these values of the kingdom and Jesus shows us a better way, but a way that we cannot pursue on our own. And Jesus gives us wonderful reassurance that God hears us, he helps us, and will do what is good for us when we do. And so, what better way to conclude than to respond to God's word now in prayer? Let's ask that the values of the kingdom would be a reality in our life, that our prayers might reflect what is truly important, and that God would give us strength to live out his kingdom in this world. So Paul is now going to come and lead us in prayer.